remember I told you there are five kids, Sheila, Mark, now in heaven, myself, uh, Janice and Matthew, then the phone rings again. And, uh, you know, sometimes you wish you never picked up the phone and in, in, a, in a drunken stupor with access to lethal means, I lost my younger brother to suicide. Welcome to the Depression Files, where we talk about everything related to mental health. From depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. We educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello, I want to welcome Dennis Gillen to the show today. Dennis, I'm excited to have you on. Um, Al, I appreciate you doing this, and I, I really appreciate you taking on this tough topic. I'd love to start the show just by having you share with the, the listeners. Just tell us about yourself. Sure. Simple guy. I grew up outside of New York City. I was very fortunate to be part of a large family. There were five kids. You know, that's large by today's standards. Back then it was normal. Um, five of us, Gillens, uh, living outside of New York City. My father worked in the city and all four grandparents came from Ireland. So it was a second generation kind of start in New York. And um, then I guess, you know, things took a little turn. The five of us got smaller. And I think we'll touch on that a little later. Um through the uh, advent of mental illness and suicide, but it's it's been a, a great journey. I'm a very fortunate man, even though we're going to probably relive on this podcast two very unfortunate days in my life uh, that I'd really like to have back. But as we all know, you can't go back. We got to go forward. So right, very, right. very, um, very idyllic growing up outside of a suburb, any town USA. You're outside of you know, Minneapolis. It was suburban life. It was you know. The house, the yard, the raking, the cutting the grass, growing up normal, what what I thought was normal. So. Pretty tight family? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Very tight. Still very tight to this day. So, yeah. um, in, in, a, in a good way. Yeah, excellent. What, uh, and then, so you eventually moved out of New York? Was that uh, later in life? Sure. What, what got me out of New York was college. Uh, I, I stayed in New York. God, I went to the same grade school, one through eight, then I went to public high school. So that's nine through 12. And then, uh, so that would put me somewhere around 17 years of age. And I got accepted at the West Virginia University. And it was about eight hours away. And, I, and off I went, not knowing much about the whole college experience or whatever. I, I just went. And uh, that was the next logical step in life. And it, it was... That was that was good. My first year, there's a transition for a lot of people. The first year was kind of rough. I had the girlfriend back in Connecticut. I'm, I'm in West Virginia. So there was some distance, and it wasn't the happiest of semesters. Then I came back, and uh, over Christmas, she broke up with me, which is <laughs> a woman's prerogative. Right, uh, right. Yeah. And then uh, I went back, and I started to enjoy the campus a little more. So my eyes were opened up a little bit. So there was no, no that ties back home. So I really – I. I dove into the campus life at West Virginia University and I was doing fine until I guess my junior year and that's when the stuff happened. And where do you fall in place of all the siblings? Oh great question. Uh, I'm in the middle of the five. I'm right in the middle. The Sheila was the oldest, is the oldest. Mark, uh, myself in the middle, Dennis, then Janice, and then Matthew. Okay. So five of us. Yeah. Right. So had, had the other, the older two uh, gone away to college as well? 
No, it was interesting. I was the first one. Uh, a lot of them, my sister stayed local, uh, went to commuter school. Uh, and my older brother, Mark, was more of a tinker. I'm not sure if he was ready for college. He would probably have been ready for like the computer age and all that stuff. He was a hands guy. Okay. Um, tinkerer, uh, really smart that way. Right. Not, not so much book smart. Everyone has their own superpower, you know, the superhero power. Mark was really good with his hands and fixing stuff. Okay, awesome. What uh, what were you studying at college? I was an accounting major, so I was uh, in the business school. Okay. Uh, and and you, you mentioned junior years when things kind of took a turn. Yeah, it was uh, in October, so we're coming up on the actual anniversary. It was October uh, 26th, 1983, my junior year, which we really just started getting the semester. We get there August, September, October. We're kind of knee-deep in it right now and uh, I knew it was going to be a long day. I had, it was a Wednesday and I had two tests on Thursday. So I knew in my head, like, wow, this is going to be a really long day. I'm going to have to go to my Wednesday classes. Then I'm going to have to pull an all-nighter to cram for these two tests, like accounting and finance back-to-back. I could barely pass one of them and now they're going to put them on top of each other. So I knew it was going to be a long day. I just didn't know how long a day it was going to be until the phone rang. And it was the, uh, the folks back home. It was my younger sister, Janice. As I told you, there were five of us, Sheila, Mark, Dennis. Janice was my younger sister. And then Matthew. Janice was on the phone saying, Dennis, you need to come home. And um, she told me Mark died. And uh, they didn't know what to tell me how. They told me Mark died in a car accident. But Mark died in a car, but it was no accident. Right, right. You know why we're here. <clears throat> yeah. So um, first you heard of it. You're eight hours away from home, I think you said, right? Correct. Eight hours away from home. Your your sister calls you, says your brother just passed away in a car accident and you need to get home. And, and that must have been just a shocker out of the blue. It was a shocker out of the blue. And then I started calling people because I couldn't believe it. So, and this is back in the day before cell phones. So I'm calling friends <laughs> left and right. I'm calling friends up and... Uh, I get a hold of one friend, and he tells me the actual truth. My brother Mark battled depression for years, and I say Mark died in a car accident. You know, it was no accident. The car never left the driveway. Uh, the car never got out of park. Mark died by suicide, mm. and it, you know they didn't know what to tell me on the phone. They just wanted to get me home. Right. And then I called back up. I remember saying, "Yo, how did he die?" I was so mad. I said, like, "How did he die?" I remember Dad saying, "Dennis, please just come home. Just come home." Yeah. So it was your friend on the phone who had told you before you went home how he really died? Yeah, he actually, he didn't know that I didn't know. Like okay. he, he had talked to his mom or a tight little community. The, the, the town was called Valley Cottage, New York, and everybody knew everybody. And word traveled pretty quick. And um, he didn't know that I didn't know. So wow. he mentioned it. And I said, what? He goes, no, it was a car accident. He goes, ah, and he felt bad. He goes, dude, I'm not sure. And we're still great friends to this day. He just didn't, you know, he didn't know what I didn't know. Yeah. So then I had to call back home and say, what happened? Right. Tough spot for him to be in too, I bet, to be. Ah, uh, to... tough spot for every, anybody. Yeah. yeah. When, the, when there's a suicide. What, uh, you know, what's going through your head? You, you made it sound like you knew he had been battling depression. Well, there were, I thought he was doing all right. You know, he had, he at sometimes, you know, he struggled through high school. Again, I told you, he's, he's very good with his hands. And, and, and college and school is not for everybody. It really isn't. Right. I mean, there are, there are other gifts uh, that you're given. He was really good. You know, he would have been a great tinkerer, you know, anything, plumber, electrician, anything. Um, and 
he'd run away a couple times. He was struggling a little bit. Uh, he actually uh, left a note. I still haven't read it. I remember my mom has. I don't want to read it, but he alluded to the fact that he, things weren't going so well. And it was, a, you know, with mental illness, you know, 90% of the people who die by suicide have some form of treatable mental illness. Depression's number one right. on the list. Bipolar's number two. That's number one. And he was battling it, you know. And, and anyone with depression, the word battle is not taken lightly. It is a battle. It's it's a day-to-day, you know, grind. Um, and he was grinding it out. And then one day he lost. Yeah. So he did leave a note. He did. And um, I, I still haven't read it. My mom, I think, I don't even know if my mom has it. Um, gone is gone. I can go back and retrace everything. I can, you know, but gone is gone. Nothing's going to help the fact that he's gone. Mark is gone. So, um, I haven't even explored it to tell you the truth. I was trying to move on and then, you know, we'll, we'll hear another sad story afterwards because I started drinking after Mark mm. died heavily. You know, I was 20 at the time. So the drinking age was 18. Yeah. And and it's funny because I, I tell the story to kids and they go, 18? I said, yeah, it was 18. You know, ask your right, parents. Right, Um And then I... That I was kind of how you coped with it? That was a major coping mechanism. I didn't mm. go see a counselor, which I should have done. I didn't uh, seek professional help. I ran into the arms of an incompetent bartender. And um, I was drinking prior to Mark, you know. We are Irish Catholic. We have a reputation to uphold. I was doing my part, but then when Mark died, I really ramped it up. And um, that's not a good way, as any guy can attest, that's not a good way to handle any adversity. It didn't work out so well. Right. Do you think, um, were you going through a depression at that time, or was it really just grieving and, and coping? It was a combination of the two. You know, looking back, depression, I... Uh, I tried to pretend, like everyone, I tried to mask it. I was like, all right, that, that was brutal. Uh, the grieving process, I was going to cut it short, which you never should do. Right. I was going to cut it short, you know, with the use of alcohol. If I was depressed, I wasn't going to allow it to overcome me. I was going to pretend I'm busy. I went back to school. I left, marked down on a Wednesday. I went, flew home on Thursday morning. I was back in school that Tuesday. That Tuesday. Yeah. And, and just pretended like nothing happened, so... That was bizarre. Right, right. And to this day, like, I mean, did you ever have an urge to read that note? Curious, like, if he gave any kind of explanation or, or any kind of final messages? Um, I don't know. I don't want to bring it up with my folks. Uh, mm. uh, my mom and dad saw it. If they thought, I'd, uh, they thought I should see it, they, they would have showed it to me. Uh, I don't know if there's some guilt involved because with, with any death by suicide, what if he calls me out? You know, hey, Dennis is a jerk. I could have been a jerk. We're brothers. You know, we always fought like siblings um, normally do, I guess. So no real desire to tell you the truth. I, yeah. just, I just, I almost want to put it to bed. Right, right. So you go back to school and you are doing a lot of drinking to help get yourself through it. What happens next? Drinking, little drugs. I actually get out of school, if you can believe it. In four years, eight weeks, I had to take a summer session. So you graduated. Uh, I graduated. You made it through even with the heavy drinking. Yeah, it was unbelievable. (laughs) I get through it. Yeah, I'm shocked. You know, my my grade point average and my blood alcohol level were like on a collision course. Uh, (laughs) But I had enough brains about me to to, to get through it. Uh, Barely. Uh, I'm not going to brag about the, the grade point average. It was brutal. Uh, but I got through. I got a degree, and uh, I, I set out 
I go back to New York. I was there only a couple months, and I moved to New Jersey. And I and and then from New Jersey, I moved to Pennsylvania. I actually started getting like a career going. I was working for Merck Pharmaceuticals, so I think I'm on the right track. And I actually got married. Um, it was really cool, and life was good. Did the white picket, you know, fence and all that stuff. Living in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And then uh, remember, I told you there were five kids: Sheila, Mark, now in heaven, myself, uh, Janice, and Matthew. Then the phone rings again. And, uh, you know, sometimes you wish you never picked up the phone and in, in, a, in a drunken stupor with access to lethal means, I lost my younger brother to suicide. So we're, Oh my God, I'm so sorry to hear that. Uh, I appreciate that, but it's you know, 83 to 94. So about 23 years ago, it, it still hurts to say it. 10, seriously, a couple of years ago, I couldn't even say the word suicide. I couldn't even say it without crying. Yeah. So they were 11 years apart, those suicides? Yeah, uh, 80, 83, I'm a junior, and then I get through that, and then 94, I'm probably now 30, 31, and right. I, we lost Matthew. And how old was he? Matthew, so 83, 94, Matthew was 23. He was born in 1970. He was coming up on his 24th birthday in August. Right. And, Bomber. Oh, my God, I can't imagine. I mean, losing one sibling has got to be devastating enough. I can't imagine what was going through your head at the mo- at that time. A lot of negative thoughts. And that's when, you know, I, I will tell myself, I got hammered the night of Matt's funeral, but I woke up that day, went to the funeral, and then I went to a dark place. You know, this is a stressful life event. And, and you know this from your experience. Depression could be internal and external. This is an external hit that I took and knocked me for a loop. I was doing all the classic stuff like sleeping when I should be awake, awake when I should be sleeping. I felt extremely vulnerable. I withdrew mm-hmm. from a lot of people. I pulled away. Yeah, uh, definite del- symptoms of depression, right? I'm out of there. I'm out of there. And then um, uh, dark, dark thoughts. I mean, just like, holy miracle, you know, I'm next, you know, all this kind of stuff. And it was at that point, I told you, I woke up, Matt's funeral hung over. And I knew... I, I, I was, I had some wits about me. I, I knew alcohol was a depressant and I was cognizant that I'm not right. Mm. Something is off. It's all, I'm, I'm, I can't get out of bed. My wife would go to work and say, Hey, try to get up by noon. Yeah. Good luck with that. Right. And then, uh, I was lucky enough that my company I worked for, they gave me enough time. They said, take your time. And they also had an employee assistance program. So one day, you know, I used to throw those brochures in the garbage because I thought I was good. I, you know, I, I survived one suicide. Now I'm, I'm doing a dumpster dive looking for those brochures. I, I need a counselor. Right. This, this is way bigger than me. How so I, long were you like with all those heavy symptoms of not getting out of bed and everything before you decided like, holy buckets, I, I need this. I need this support. It was pretty quick because I never <clears throat> felt like that before. It was like, oh, man, this is dark. Yeah. This is really dark. This is not cool. And I felt vulnerable. Right. right. And up until then, we all, you know, young, you're bulletproof, whatever. You yeah. can do anything. You're jumping off bridges into rivers. You don't care. And now I felt like, oh, my gosh, my life could end. Yeah. And then those dark thoughts that come with that. So scary, I would imagine. I mean, not it, just vulnerable, but scared. Scary. And then um, it was probably within two weeks of me laying around. I'm like, I got to do something. Well, one thing I did, it was really smart. The alcohol thing, I realized is that the press, so I just said, I'm going to take a break. 
Mm. I'm going to take a time out from that. I just said, I'm not drinking anymore because I know we don't need to put gasoline on this fire. I'm not right. And that's definitely not going to help because it didn't help the first time. Right. So I took a time out. Yeah. And I'm, I'm happy to report as of this podcast, that time out still exists. Wow. Fantastic. 23 years sober. Uh, that was a great decision. And the other great decision I think we were alluding to was I, I called up the employees this program and I saw a counselor and this guy goes, hey, you want to do it over the phone or you want to do it in person? I was like, I think I need to come see you. Yeah. Oh, awesome decision. Hey, before we jump into the counseling, which I want to hear about, can you explain to the listeners, because anytime a sibling, somebody close, a relative dies, people go through a grieving period, right? And everybody's grieving, looks a little different, feels a little different. The timeline, I think, is different. I know there are stages that people go through, but can you explain to the listeners, like, yours was different, right? That's not just grieving when you can't get out of bed. It was intense. So how would you describe the difference between grieving and, like, going into a dark, deep place after the death of a brother? Grieving is actually a normal process that helps us cope. We have to grieve. And we, we, I don't think we grieved properly when Mark died, to tell you the truth. I think we try to shorten the process. And it may have stunted us uh, developmentally and mentally that we didn't, we didn't let the process work. Grieving is a normal response. So if anyone out there is listening and you're grieving over the loss of something, whatever it is, I'm not going to minimize your loss. You could, you know, your goldfish could have died. If that bugs you, you can grieve over it. Mm. What we're, and, uh, and be incredibly sad, right? Yeah, and not sad's, be depressed. Sad's normal. Like uh, right. uh, this week, there was a lot of sad events in America, and sadness is a normal reaction. Yeah, and, and it's it's the sadness in life that lets us recognize the joy. But you have to have both. You can't throw the sadness out because you end up throwing the joy out. That's a whole other topic. Right. But the the grieving is normal. You have to go through it, and, and you, you nailed it out when you said no, there's no time frame, there's no recipe. You just go through it at your pace. What happened when the grieving turned dark, like when it got like, oh, this is interrupting my life, mm. my sleep, my thoughts. Like, wow, now this is this is a whole nother element. That's that's when I said, all right, this is depression now. This is this is me. I always say over grieving because it wasn't it was a separate entity. It was like, wow, this is this is scary. Right. Right. And then and that self recognition like this isn't grieving so much as this is now I'm scared. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned thoughts. Uh, were those like, are you alluding to suicidal thoughts or just a thought process that wasn't working functioning normally? Yeah. There were never really any suicidal thoughts per se, not saying I'm immune to it. You know, we've had stuff coming, you know, life events coming like, I'll be better off dead. And like, hold on, no, that you wouldn't be, you know, that that'll pop in even though I'm suicide prevention guy, I'm a mental health advocate. We're not immune to that. Now, these thoughts were, um, they were grave in nature, but I was almost like the opposite, like trying not to die. Like, I never thought of that before. Like, what what if I die now? I got a wife, you know, my family, my parents, you know, so suicide was not an option then. It's not an option now because I've seen it twice and I've seen what it does to a family and loved ones and what we call the ripple effect. Even people you don't know are impacted. It's like, no, I can't. Not saying I'm not immune to the thought, but I, I've learned these resilience techniques to chase it out. Like, all right, not an option. Right, See, right. You're in, you're out. You're in one ear, you're out the other. So it's it's not that. It was just that, that the grave thoughts of like, you know what? I could die. Right. I could die, and I don't know how or when or what, but this 
it's paralyzing at a point like I could die. So why don't you just stay in bed and you right. won't have to worry, you won't have to worry about it. Yeah. Yeah. Bed kind of became my safety zone and I could go in my bedroom. I could close the door. I couldn't sleep at all, but that was like my safe spot. Um, so you realize you need counseling. You do a little dumpster dive and graphite the brochure. Yeah. And, and I think it's a great idea. You, you said like, no, I w- I need to come see you. Like you knew it was grave enough. Phone isn't good enough. It's not going to cut it. And I think just getting out of your house was good too, probably. So what was it like when you first went to counseling? It's funny because I, um, I try now in my, in my life to fight the stigma of going to counseling, but I'll tell them myself when I walked in there, I looked over my shoulder to see if anyone saw me going in there and we got to get way past that, especially men. We, that's, that's, we got to get past that. Yeah. I know my mental health is just as important as my physical health. I get it. It took me years of, you know, of, uh, <laughs> battle scars, but I get it now. I get it. The yin, the yang, they got to go together. Uh, so now I don't care who sees me going in to my counsel. Yeah. I still have one. That's um, funny that you mentioned that. Uh, my first time I was going specifically to a behavioral health clinic. So I couldn't even be sitting in that waiting room pretending that I'm seeing my family doctor. Right. It's like yeah. I'm there and I'm looking around thinking I'm probably going to see somebody from my school district. I work for St. Paul Public Schools. It's a huge district. Yep. I might even see a kid because they do kids here. And I was like, that caused me great anxiety. I was tempted to go visit a different doctor in a different city just because of that. And that is, that's self-stigmatizing, right? You're putting your own stigma on it. And uh, so you got over that and you were fine to, to be seeing a counselor. What was your first time like? Oh, that was unbelievable. It's funny you asked that question because I walk in there, and, you know, still like most guys have never been a counselor listening to your show. Like you're still sitting there going, I can't believe I'm here, but I'm here. Mm-hmm. So this dude asked one question. It was unbelievable. He goes, why are you here, Dennis? And I just start bawling, crying. It was in there. It had to come out. Yeah. If you swallow your problems, man, your stomach keeps score. My stomach hurt. My life hurt. I lost weight. And I just start bawling. And I had to do it. I, yeah. I don't feel like I could have dumped on all my loved ones. You know, I had to do it. I'm paying this guy. Listen, I'm going to cry. Yeah, I, I, cried yeah. for the, I cried for the entire hour. And I remember he was sitting there and I was telling, I threw the sobs. I was trying to get the story out. I lost a brother to suicide. I could see him writing and I'm like crying. And then I lost another brother and you can see his eyes get big. Yeah. And I looked up, I go, that's not the reaction I'm looking for. I remember like making a joke, like, come yeah. on. This right. is my life. And I just cried. And I, I think I cried the entire hour. Yeah. And it needed to come out. So I'm not I'm not ashamed of that. That needed to come out. Oh, absolutely. I, I went to, uh, before I checked myself into a partial hospitalization program for three weeks, the night before I went to a men's support group for depression, just to kind of build support for when I was going to get out of there. And for two hours, I cried and spilled my guts and shared with like five, six, seven men in this depression group. And I couldn't, I mean, it sounds just like your story. I mean, I couldn't stop crying. I was sharing stuff. Um, But I can understand, yeah. Uh, You know, and and you're in with somebody who you can trust, right? A a counselor. A competent professional, Yeah. yeah. So that felt good, I'm guessing, letting that all out. The, the way I try to equate it sometimes when I do my talks is I'll say to the kids, I, I talk at a lot of universities, I said, you ever have like a stomach virus and you throw up and you come out of the bathroom, you go, hey, who wants to go to Jimmy John's? I'm starving. <laughs> like it had to come out. Yeah. Whatever was in there, it had to come out. 
And I also say, you know, the people who were thinking about counseling, like my problems didn't disappear. Like this guy didn't make Matt and Mark appear and go, hey, they're back. Your problems won't disappear, but they, they seem to become an order. They just seem orderly or they're in boxes now. Like, Let's take care of this one first. Then we'll move to this one and then this one. They don't disappear. They just they have an order to them, which is makes more sense when I walk out of there after that hour. All right, I got to tackle this first or yeah. I got to take care of me and then we'll worry about that. Right. Did you click with this guy right away, do you think, relationally? Yeah, a couple things happened. Uh, it was my first time with a counselor, and I've had a couple since. Uh, my favorite was this woman here in, in Columbia, South Carolina, where I live, and she moved. So, you know, I've started like, like if anyone's thinking about counseling, it has to be right for both people. And you know this. Yeah. It has to be right for the counselor. It has to be right for you. I think that's a great point, though, for listeners, right? Like I always say, if it's your first time at counseling and it doesn't go well, don't give up on counseling. Shop around. It's well worth it to find somebody that you click with. Yeah, I got in trouble one time. I was in a talk. I said, it's just like Tinder. And one kid goes, what do you know about Tinder? I was like, I know, but you have to swipe. You have to find the right. I was like, good point. Uh, some kids of my lacrosse team told me. Uh, but yeah, and that's a true story. They did tell me about that. And I was like, what is this app called Tinder? They were telling me. But that's kind of what it is. You have to. It's almost like dating in a sense. You ha- It has to make sense for both parties. Yep. The counselor, too. They have yeah. to be able to handle your problems. And you have to feel comfortable. Yeah. And I have this one now. I'm, I'm pretty happy. So, you know, as happy as a guy could be going to the counseling. I, I, I drive there. I go and I, I enjoy our sessions. Yeah. How, how long did you stick with the first one? And I'm curious, too, how long your employee assistance program paid for you to go to counseling? How, how many sessions or how did that work? Great question. And I had, I had eight sessions free with this guy, eight sessions free. And I've had insurance throughout my career. I've had multiple careers. I've had insurance where I had great coverage yeah. and I have insurance where I had to pay for counseling. Right. And I recently wrote a check for it and I don't mind paying for it because I believe in it. This guy, uh, this is funny. The first session I had was eight sessions. We went a little bit longer than that, but something really good happened in the middle of that. If you hang in there long enough, now this is my anti-suicide message. If you're depressed, you hang in life long enough, every now and then you will get a bone thrown your way. And in the middle of these sessions, my wife and I were having trouble getting pregnant when my brother Matthew died. We were just going, they were checking her thyroid and they say, Dennis, we're coming after you next. I'm like, oh, great. You know, we got to figure out this thyroid thing quick because I don't want that appointment. But it happens. We were, we were struggling with infertility in a sense. Right. And Somewhere in the middle of these sessions, and I can almost tell you the day, um, I went to go clean out my brother's apartment. And my wife called me up. And this is kind of a, a nice story. And it's, I'm going to cry when I tell it. Is, um, she calls up while I'm down in Richmond, Virginia, and I live in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, four hours away. Mm. She goes, hey, my temperature spiked today. And if you're trying to get pregnant, that means a lot. I'm like, oh, crap, honey. I'm, you know, I'm down here cleaning out this apartment, crying my eyes out. And... Um, I hightailed at home and um, somewhere in the middle of those sessions without going into the details, we got pregnant. So in, the, in my darkest hour, and they often say, I think there's a quote that says in the, uh, in the abyss, you will find your treasure. I'm butchering it, but that's right, what it's right. in the, in the darkest, darkest day of my life. I got this incredible bone thrown my way and said, Hey, you're going to have a baby. Yeah. I'm like, what? Yeah. You know, I was expecting zero good news. Right. And it, and, and, and if, if they said yes, and you'll never get pregnant, that's what I was expecting. But also, we said, "Hey, guess what? We're, you're, you're, we're pregnant." Yeah. And and the counselor must think he's like the most awesome counselor ever, because all of a sudden my mood went woo, you know. But 
I, I got a, some good news finally. And right. for most of us, we have to hang in there. Uh, it'll come around. It may take a while. It's often not on our timeline. You know, right. We want good news tomorrow. Uh, we want good, I want to go to bed tonight and tomorrow. I want to win the light. It's not going to happen. But that was unbelievable. That happened. And Martin, is my son, is 22 years old. And uh, he's never seen his daddy drunk because, remember, I gave up drinking. And uh, right. So I'm very proud of that. And yeah. uh, then I, I, God bless me again when I have another boy, Brendan. So All right, I got fantastic. Two, I got two knuckleheads. It's, it's kind of a weird universe thing, Al. I lost two brothers. I have two sons. Yeah, right. I'm, it's just that everything's equal, but um, uh, not equal. Still miss Matt and Mark dearly. Yeah, yeah. When you found out you were pregnant, you... I know you mentioned you were cleaning out your, your brother's apartment and stuff, So, but you had been going to counseling. I mean, were you in a pretty good place mentally when you found out you were pregnant? No. Not you uh, personally, but your wife. <laughs> I, I, I often wonder about what my wife was going through because she didn't sign on for this. You know, She knew I lost a brother to suicide when we got married. Then she knows my brother, Matthew. He was my best man at my wedding and uh, the, the trauma of that. So we both weren't that good um, – I was in a lousy spot, to tell you the truth. Yeah, and that was on um, as a you know, a serious break I needed. Uh, well, it sounds like you were really able to soak up the joy, though, of it, right? Um, I mean, I it, think if I was in my, one of like the darkest moods I've been in, and found out my wife was pregnant, I think I, that might make me even worse. Like, holy crap! Now I'm I'm bringing somebody into this world while I'm like down in this deep dark hole. You're right. It could be a trigger for some. Like, oh my gosh, this is more pressure that I don't need. Thankfully, I didn't. I didn't react that way because yeah. what happened was I got to go back to New York, and I was thinking a little bit like, wow, oh, what is this kid getting into? Um, but I got to go back to New York only a couple months earlier. I was up there for the funeral for Matthew, and I got to give my parents these coffee mugs that said "World's Greatest Grandma," "World's Greatest Grandpa." And they open them up like, "What's this?" It's like, "We got some good news." You know, yeah. finally, the Gillen family, I'm going to cry, but finally we got some good news. Right. We're, pre- we're pregnant. This is the first grandkid. They went, what? I said, yeah, mom and dad. Now, think about it. I'm the brother. Think yeah. about what it is to be the parent. You know, they buried two sons. Right. So finally we got some good news. And it was received in the spirit it was given. Yeah. You're right. Your point is awesome. It, it could have thrown me into a loop, but it was received in the spirit was given. It was like, wow, thank That's you. A, yeah. Yeah. Like we're due. It's about yeah. time something good comes our way. Yeah, nothing good was going my way. It really wasn't. I'm like, you know what? I'm due. And, why, and your parents were just thrilled, I'm sure. And absolutely. Yeah. Good. It's ecstatic yeah. with it. It was. It was. It was really cool to see. And um, literally, uh, that was in the fall. So Matthew died in July. So July, okay, like somewhere around three months earlier, we were up there for a funeral, and then three months later, we're here going, hey. Right. We're going to expand this family that seems to be declining right now. Yeah, yeah. It and was amazing. Yeah, that's fantastic. You you mentioned you still go to counseling. Yes. Is that like a weekly deal, a monthly deal? How often do you go? It, it's funny. It's uh, I was weekly up until recently. I got really busy. September was Suicide Prevention Month, and I speak on suicide prevention. So I got super busy in September. Right. And it's funny you mentioned that today because I was looking at my email. I was like, I got to get back in there. Mentally, I know like I'm still churning through some stuff. And it, just today, I was like, I got to find a spot because all my appointments – Like it was funny – 
I was a regular on Thursdays. I was regular Thursday, Thursday, and all the Thursdays I was gone. So I told my counselor, say, September, we're going to take off. I'll see you in October. So you just reminded me right now yeah. that I got to get back on the groove. And October is kind of busy too, but we'll find a spot. And we were doing some of that stuff called EMDR. Okay, we cool. To, yeah. And that, that was helping a little bit. And every little bit helps. And I'm, I'm open to any technique. And here's where I land on counseling and uh Anything that pulls anyone out of depression, you know, people will say, hey, I'm into yoga, I'm into meditation, I'm into journaling, I do this, I go hiking, I'm into Reiki, whatever, whatever you're into, whatever works for you, works for you. I'm a big fan of whatever works for you. Yeah, yeah, that's a fantastic yeah. point. Right? Yeah. It, it is always different, and um, and I think it's great when people share ideas about what worked for them if somebody's in a place where they're feeling stuck so that they can open up their, uh, you know, their toolbox and try new things and figure out what it is that, that really works for them. But I'm glad you're thinking about going back. Um, I would imagine after having lost two brothers to suicide that I can't believe that anybody would ever get completely over that. No, and then there's the old saying, you never get over it, you get through it. I'm never going to get over it. Yeah. And if any of your listeners are going through some stuff and it's uh, it's horrific, you're not going to get over it, you'll get through it. Yeah. If if I get over my brothers, it means they weren't significant to me. And, right. and that would that would scare I'll get through it. And what I look like on the other side, I don't know. I'm still going through it. Yeah. It's just, it's a journey. Right. And I, it'll end when I close my eyes for the final time, but I hopefully I'm a ripe old age. Yeah. Well, and you've taken steps to work at recovery, right? And getting through it, right? So that you're able to be, I mean, you seem to me to be thriving now, right? You seem pretty happy and you, you're you doing your presentations that I want to hear more about and such and, and deep into this work, which you, you probably never would have been. You're right. And it's a, a reluctant warrior now in the mental health arena. And it's um, it's been a, a mission of sorts now to, to, to to give a voice to those who don't have a voice. And just today I was down at a homeless shelter. I, I, I do talks at colleges and some corporate events. I get paid. All right, that's great. But I also do these free ones. And those folks down there, it's probably my, my most, my favorite audience because they, they, they deal with real stuff every day. And, um, it's, it's given a voice to those who don't have a voice and anybody who's listening to the podcast, if you're going through something and you get through the other side, well, what is the other side? We're still going through it, Al, you and I both. Um, you get to a point where you want to help others. Redemptive healing, where you want to go back and say, listen, that really stunk, and I don't want anyone else to do it. And it takes a long time, because I wasted, I thought I wasted a lot of years. And I was talking to this guy, and I said, I wasted a lot of time. He goes, no, you weren't ready. Yeah. You weren't ready. Yeah, I think that's a great point. So take your time. I think uh, I think it took me three years of being mentally healthy before I decided to do some advocating around mental illness and particularly depression. And, and that's really cool that you're doing it. Yeah, yeah, but it certainly took time. Right after I finished the partial hospitalization program, my boss was like, maybe you want to share with staff your story. I'm like, uh, no, it's a little too raw right now, and I'm not even recovered. That was a great kickstart, but I got a long ways to go. It's funny you said that. I tried giving this talk one time. I got invited down. I'm in Columbia, South Carolina, where the University of South Carolina is. And they said, come in and talk to these psychology interns and social workers. Maybe eight or nine of them around a desk. I wasn't ready. Dude, I cried the entire time. They introduced this guy. 
and it, I didn't know who this person was. That this is a suicide, you know, survivor of suicide. He lost two brothers, and I'm sitting there going, "Oh, that poor schmuck." And then I realized that they go, "Ladies and gentlemen, Dennis Gillen." I'm like, "That poor schmuck is me." <laughs> <laughs> and I started crying. I'm like, "Oh, I never heard myself introduced like that." I'm like, right. "Golly!" I'm sitting there going, "That guy's got a rough life." Yeah. And I was like, "Hold on, I am that guy." Right. So that that talk didn't go very well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So in addition to uh, therapy, what else? Are, what else are you doing to stay mentally fit? I um, I've been taking care of myself a little bit as far as exercise. I always have something on the radar that keeps me moving and grooving. I was riding my bike for a while. Uh, I still was playing. I can't do it that much longer. I'm an old man. I was playing lacrosse with a, with a bunch of young kids. Now they have a master's league, but you know I'm too old for that. That's violent and. I get hurt. Yeah, I'm in a, a vi- that is a physical sport. Oh, my oh God. it's fun though. It takes out your aggression oh. though. You get to plow somebody, and half the time I get plowed. It's, it's, it's okay. You know, you play for an hour, you talk about it for nine hours. That's how it works. <laughs> but I, I'm into this tennis right now. Tennis is good. I have ADD, and the ball flies by, and I see it kind of slow down and stuff. So I'm always there's a physical exercise component, right. and. And, and there are studies galore, but even something simple. When my dog was alive, God rest his soul, the greatest dog ever, Fella, he died last year. I'd go hiking with Fella. In the woods, whatever you do that works for you, get out and get moving. So that's yeah. a big part of it. So the sobriety, counseling, and I, I got to keep moving right. in some shape or form. Yeah. So those are your big three. That's the big three. And sometimes I play tennis, even going through some stuff. That I play tennis just so I'm tired at night. Right. So I, so I could sleep. Um, other than the therapist, do you have some support, um, people who you can reach out to if you're having a rough day? or I do. I like am in a, I'm in a Bible-based men's group, and men need men. Yep. Um, I have a couple guys that have been in the same situation as I have been. You know, they lost a sibling or a brother or father, and we have this little network of dudes that meet from time to time. And uh, on a men's broadcast, men need men. Uh, so I do have this network of folks I could touch at any moment, uh, some in, in the religious arena, some in the lay arena that I don't care where you get them. Dudes need dudes. Yeah. And I have some really great guys in my life that I can call up the phone and go, Hey, I am not doing so hot today. Yeah. Fantastic. And I would imagine you have shared all of this stuff with your, your sons. It was interesting. I had to wait. You know, I, I waited and I always thought like in life, it'll reveal itself. I always used to stress about decisions. Then I come to this mantra like it'll reveal itself. Right. And one day I was on the phone and my son was about 10. My youngest guy was about 10. And I was talking about suicide and suicide prevention. And I hung up the phone. I didn't realize he was behind me. Right. And I was talking about my brothers. And, he, and I turned around and he goes, Dad, is that true? Wow. Uh, and then I, but then I, I caught myself. I said, it'll reveal itself. I yeah. like, I had struggled with when, when do I bring him into this? When do I tell him about the two uncles they, they, they don't have? Yeah. When, when do I tell him about these brothers that I never talked about? And it just revealed itself. Right. And I, I sat, sat him down. I said, Brandon, I'm going to tell you this. And when Martin gets home from school, I'll tell him the same way. This is my story. And now I speak at colleges. And now Martin, I've spoken. Martin's my oldest boy. He went to Furman University. He saw my talk. I did a talk at the school, and he was in the audience. Oh, fantastic. Then I went to Clemson, where my other son goes to school, and he saw my talk. What did they both have to say about your talk? They were actually uh, really – it was really cool because the talk is – 
it's tough in the beginning when I go over the brothers and then I, I go on this ride, I talk about stuff. And at the end, the kids are really with me the whole time. So there's a sort of a little pride, like my older son, Martin, come up and goes, Dad, I'm really proud of you for doing that. And that meant the world to me. That's awesome. Yeah, because he was in the audience. It made me nervous that he was there the first time. You know, I'm looking right. up and there's, there's my kid. And I told him the story, but like he's in yeah. the arena. I'm, I'm doing the thing and he, I look over and there's my boy and my wife was there. So um, it was really interesting, but I'm glad they got to see it. Yeah, that's cool. It must cool. Uh, it must be such an amazing feeling to hear your son you know, tell you how proud he is of the work you're doing. Yeah, and that was, that was really cool. It was... Um, it meant the world to me. Do you talk about mental health with them? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Because going back to this thing, 90% of all the people who die by suicide have some form of treatable or misdiagnosed mental health right. issue. So I talked about my brothers. I said, listen, we got to go upstream. You know, I'm downstream. I'm at the bottom at suicide prevention. We got to go upstream and talk about mental health. And I know for a fact, uh, one of them has sought, sought a counselor at school because, you know, School's a tough yep. time. Oh, yeah. A transitional phase for a lot of kids. And yep. uh, I support them. And yeah. uh, I said, good for you. Um, and you, you genetically, you know, if you're if you're one of my sons, there's a good chance that, you know, yeah. I'm a guy who lost two brothers. You may have the genes. You can't pick your parents. Yeah. So we just, we have to have that conversation. Yeah. Big That's proponent. The, they know yeah. where I am on this. Yeah. Right. So one is one sought out a, co a counselor on his own. That's fantastic. And then, um, do you feel like they share that kind of stuff with you as well? If they're if they're feeling down, would they give you a call as well? They do and they don't. It's the same. They go back to the, the, genetically. They're still men. Yeah. And men, yeah. we stink. We stink at sharing this stuff. So yeah. I'll even throw my son under the bus on that one. They still stink at it. Sometimes yeah. I have to pry it out of them. Yeah. Um, and I get that, but guys as a whole, yeah, as a whole, we're horrible at sharing the tough stuff like on mental health. We're just, yeah. we're just, we're bad at it. Yeah. Say more about that. Well, if you look at the arena I'm in, women have more attempts of suicide, but often what they'll do, Al, is they'll emote or they'll reach out. Men have more completions. 76% of all suicides are guys. Let's round that up. That's eight out of 10. Let's take it down. It's four to five. Because we don't tell anybody what's going on in our mind. We just walk in the woods and we don't come out, which is baloney. More uh, masking than the now, than totally, yeah. totally. We should get to the point, and we're getting there. I, I, I have faith in these future generations. They're talking about it more. But maybe my generation, I'm 53, um, we didn't talk about it. My dad's generation definitely didn't talk about it. But I ho hope for these younger generations that they'll talk about it. So one day, you know, these kids will be going, hey, I'm going to go play tennis and one guy go really i got my therapist appointment i'll see you later and that's that's how simple it is yeah yeah that's my dream world we're just talking about oh yeah i gotta go see my mental health counselor see you later yeah. all right we'll, we'll have a beer later okay mine will be non-alcoholic great right we're good so mental health the mental health we have to reduce the stigma around getting treatment and then they, and, and as guys we got to talk about it more yeah and then if we do that if we do that, I have these stats right here, and your listeners can't, maybe you can hear it, I'm crumbling paper, but they can't see it. But, you know, 44,193 suicides, 44,193 suicides. Remember that number, 76% are men. Yeah. That's ridiculous. That's, oh, man, I, I don't want to curse on your podcast, but yeah, it, it makes me want to. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, the statistic that blows my mind is 
that there's a suicide in the United States, one suicide every 12.3 minutes. And in that same amount of time, there are 26 attempts. It's unbelievable. Yeah, I, f- I feel like that just needs to be spoken about on a regular basis. And we need to be doing a hell of a lot more than we are as a society to fight it. And a huge part of that is the stigma. The stigma that prevents people from seeking treatment, the stigma that um, negatively um, impacts people with jobs or apartments, housing, um, so many different ways. And I, I think we have made some gains, and I think there's a long ways to go yet. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and, and all these guys that, you know, you talked about the stigma. Life isn't all Skittles and unicorns. And it's a, we often put on a facade. Yeah. in life and one of the greatest facades ever you know is anyone on social media you know you look at their oh, yeah. it's instagram face, oh life is all honky dory and we know it's not like that you know there's there's mountaintops there's also valleys yeah um and you can't have the good without the bad but we we, we will i often say this somebody talk you know a shared joy is a double joy a shared sorrow is half a sorrow right we we, we, we stink at sharing the sorrow part we just don't do it and we, we got to get better at that. We're just going to say, you know, I'm having a crap day. What's going on? This is what's going on. Yeah. But guys were told, cowboy up, you know. Yeah, right. Oh, please. Yeah. I I'm, so, I'm so done with that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, tell us more about your talks. Well, the talks are, the, uh, the genesis of the talk was I got invited one time to do a talk at American Foundation Suicide Prevention where they're out of the darkness walks. I was going to go do this thing, and I, I, I didn't want to do it. But when I got done doing the talk, this person came up to me and says, you need to tell that story more often. I said, oh, no, I don't. I'm done. <laughs> right. I'm one and done. We're good. And um, she goes, no. So I started branching out, and then I got a call from, a, uh, I think it was a college of Charleston heard. Someone heard me speak at the walk and said, would you come down and talk to us? And I, I didn't do a very good job there. Um, again, I was a very emotional. USC, I tried it. And then... Like everything else, it just started morphing into this talk. And then one time I had to do six talks at the Air Force Base. I got signed up to do six talks. In what kind of length of time? It was uh, these, all these sessions, probably about 30 to 45 minutes. I had to tell my story, but it was six times the same story. Yeah. Which is okay because you need repetition, you need practice. And somewhere in the middle, I went on a rant. And I don't know if you could tell, I like to laugh a little bit, but I went on a rant. And I looked up and the audience was laughing. And that when I come off the stage later, the girl who was in charge of my talk said, you need to do more of that. In addition to the heavy stuff, right? tell the lighter stories that where you screwed up in your life. So, oh, absolutely. I got more of those stories. <laughs> I, got tons right. of, I got tons of those. So, you know, put on your seatbelt, sister. Here they come. So I started incorporating humor into it a little, not flipping, not on the topic, more right. about what I, what's happened in my life. And it's sort of this roller coaster. It starts off with the brothers, and then we go into the warning signs of anyone that's suicidal pulling away. I tell some funny stories about how I got outed. You know, like I didn't want to tell my story, but this is where we are, and some other good stuff. And we joke a little bit, but you got it for guys. And I'm talking about guys. If you want to disarm them a little bit, laughter works. It, it lets the message land. Yeah, absolutely. When I looked up at the Air Force, I looked up and these guys were rolling a little bit because I just went off. And um, later on, you could see them. They, they got the message. They got the important part, too. They got the laughter part, but they got the important part, too, that life is worth living. Yeah, that's fantastic. Hey, if people want to book you, um, how do they find out, find out about you? How do they get, sure. to get in touch with you? 
I have a website, which is literally my name. It's DennisGillen.com. Very original. D E N N I S. G-I-L-L-A-N, and isn't it? DennisGillen.com. You can go there, check it out. And then, of course, I'm on Facebook with a, a speaker site. I keep that one up to date. I'm on Twitter as D. Gillen, and then I'm on Instagram as Dennis Gillen. And one day when I win the lottery, I'm, I'm going to get off all those. <laughs> <laughs> but for the business and the kids and the business, it's it's kind of cool. And I'm real on there. Like a lot of people are fake, and I'll tell you when I'm having a crap day. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty real on mine. Yeah. Any other uh, services or um, other things you do to support your mission? That's a great question. Uh, and someone else asked me that one time, and it, it, it made me go out and add more to my repertoire. Um, I'm on the board of the American Foundation of Suicide Prevention. They have a lot of great programs. Like one yeah, of them is called fantastic. Talk Saves Lives. So I do that when I can, and I usually do that on behalf of them, and that's. Yeah, they set that up, and it's it's usually at schools or stuff. I went and got trained on this thing called Question, Persuade, Refer, QPR training. Yeah, um, it's to teach people how to talk to someone in, in that in crisis, just on along the same lines of CPR. And I get, actually give out certificates when I'm done. And then I just started branching out into this employee assistance program. I, I morphed it into like a leadership, like. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care and how an, e, how an EAP helped me get back on my feet. And if you're a good leader, you would suggest it or take advantage of it yourself. So you, great question. But a year ago, it was just me and my story. And then I said, you know, I, I need to do more. Yeah. So I'm trying to do more. <clears throat> That's fantastic. And you plan to grow the business and continue with it? Yeah, so far I've been very blessed. Every time I start stressing out, like I don't have another gig, you know, it's everything. And, th- and then I get one. Yeah. And it just keeps me sustainable and it keeps going. I actually quit my day job one night. I was driving home from a university really late at night and I was driving, you know, I'm sober, but I was driving like a drunk driver. I was all, I was tired. Right. And I got home like, I can't do this. I can't burn it. So I'm going to try this mental health advocacy thing for a while. And it's been working out. I, I, I get these gifts and these bones thrown to me. Here's another gig. Here's another gig. Yeah. I may go broke doing it, but every now and then I get a message from a kid or someone in the audience that just keeps me going. Makes it all so, worth it. Totally. And that's part of the redemptive healing. If you can help someone out, I don't know if I'll ever, ever you know, get immediate feedback that I meant something. But in my heart of hearts, I think I'm, I'm touching somebody out there. Yeah. They, they may say it, they may not. But, you know, I lost two brothers and I, I got to get equal at the universe. If I could save a couple more, then I'll be in the plus column. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure you have. Well, hopefully they listen. Yeah. I think um, they do. So, and do people typically find out about you from word of mouth or are you actually out doing some marketing, advertising type of stuff? Sure. I do a lot of phone calls myself. I was a salesman in my former life, so I know I got to get out there market. I beg, borrow. <laughs> um and then I, I was in a position where I, I wouldn't turn down anything. I do rotary clubs. You know, I talk, I do a lot of churches, yep. uh, uh, civic groups, and often they don't have money, so I'll do it for free. Right. And then, and then if I can, I guess I, if I could do it, get a paid gig, that'd be awesome because the paid gigs help me do the free gigs. Yeah. So it all works out in the end. So yeah. I do a lot of marketing, uh, universities, colleges, and cool. try to get try to get in businesses as well. Yeah. And even the the free gigs, hopefully, sometimes they they bring in some other business, right? Like maybe somebody in a church wants you to go speak to their business that is not a nonprofit or a church organization. That has happened. Someone said, "Hey, you need to go here," and yeah. I've got a lead or two off that, and that's really nice when that happens. Yeah, yeah, cool. Um, I watched uh, some of your talks, just some scenes on on the internet and stuff, and 
uh, yeah, I'm sure your your talks are dynamic and would be awesome for people to uh, to hire you. I'll make sure in my uh, in the notes of the show too that your uh, website. I'll have a link there for people as well. Um, any other you know final tips or suggestions you have um, or words of hope to the listeners? Somebody who might be going through some depression at this point. Yeah, I, I have a lot of hope on, on, on the front. You know, the brain is a very complex tool, but I, I recently read some studies where there's some really cool stuff happening on research end. And I always thought like, well, if I was depressed, it would just be my luck. You know, I, I decided to check out and they would find a cure for what I had. So I'm going to hang in there. So I'm going to encourage you to hang in there. There was recently a, a study at a University of Pittsburgh. They found like a... a, a uh, a vitamin deficiency, like a not folic acid, but folinic acid, F-O-L-I-N-I-C. And it, they, it was a small trial, but seven out of eight people reported really good results. So, they, hey, that's a victory. So there's a lot of cool stuff going on. So I'm going to say, everybody hang in there. Yeah. Don't don't give up. There, there, there's really some good things going on. The group I'm with, the AFSP, they fund a lot of research, education. There's some cool stuff happening, and people are starting to recognize the, the the complexity of the, the modern brain, and it's still one of the most complex organs we have, period. But they're starting to tap into it a little bit, and, and, and there's some really some silver linings out there for people that have been what we call refractory depression, where doctors go, I don't know. You know, that's you know, right. there's some, some good stuff happening, so hang in there. Yeah, yeah, that's some good advice. And, you know, also just based on the data we shared earlier, you know, I think people are realizing, like, this research does need to be going. This research needs to be accelerating a bit because there are an incredible, incredibly large amount of people that, that need need good care for depression and other mental illnesses. Absolutely. And as a country, I don't want to get on ramp, but we don't treat the mentally ill very well. Yeah. Here in Columbia, South Carolina, we, we have a minor league baseball field. And we our claim to fame this summer was Tim Tebow was assigned to go play there and everybody was excited. I wasn't that excited because on that, on that grounds where that ball field is, was our mental hospital and we, we, we don't have it anymore. Oh, it's right. gone. We closed it. So, you know, they're on the streets or in the jails and the ERs. We don't, as a country, we don't treat the mentally yeah. ill, severely mentally very well. And we got to change that. Yeah. All the advocates, everyone out there listening, that has to change. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, Dennis, Hey, thank you for your work. Thank you for your time. Thank you for being on the podcast. Um, uh, it's been really, uh, really enjoyable to, to speak with you. Wow. Thank you. Right back at you. Thank you for your work. The fact that we're even doing a podcast talking about men and depression. You know, we've come light years. We, what was the old thing? We, we've come a long way, baby. Uh, so I, I really appreciate the work you're doing and, and, and having the guts to put this on the air and put your story out there as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you again and uh, stay in touch and stay healthy. Absolutely. Will do. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. Please know that if you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text to 741741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you're a man who has experienced depression and would like to be interviewed for the show, please reach out to me on Twitter at AlLevin18. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.